Security Ledger podcast reach an audience of thousands of information technology and information security professionals each week. If that's an audience that you'd like to reach, think about becoming a Security Ledger podcast sponsor. To find out more about sponsoring our podcast, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sales. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 160, summer is typically a slow time, but for those who are in the trenches of the struggle to create a digital right to repair, the summer of 2019 will be remembered as anything but slow. Following a legislative season in which 20 state legislatures considered right to repair legislation, this past July saw the Federal Trade Commission weigh in with a workshop dubbed Nixing the Fix that delved into industry restrictions on repair. And then to cap it off, Apple Computer made news in August by announcing last week that it would begin selling Apple-authorized parts to independent repair shops. That left us here at the Security Ledger wondering where things stand with the right to repair. Is Apple's end-of-summer decision on replacement parts the beginning of the end, or, as Winston Churchill mused, is it just the end of the beginning in the battle to secure a digital right to repair? To sort it all out, we invited two noted right-to-repair advocates into the studio to talk about the development over the summer. Nathan Proctor is the coordinator of U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Right to Repair campaign. And we're welcoming back to the studio Kyle Weens, who is the founder of the repair site iFixit and a noted right to repair advocate. Nathan and Kyle, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. Nathan, let's start with you. Apple raised a lot of eyebrows last week with its announcement about providing Apple certified parts to independent repair shops. Talk about that news and what it means for right to repair. Basically, Apple agreed to sell part assemblies for certain parts to repair shops based on their completion of a free course uh, and also in exchange for them returning all of their broken iPhone parts um, and Apple parts to their recyc- into their recycling program. So if you are an independent repair shop, you will be able to get Apple OEM parts to do some of your repairs. You will also get some access to some of the software it looks like. This is a big question we have. Is it the full diagnostic software that they use in the Apple Store or or, are they kind of coming up with another version to let uh, independent shops use? But it seems like it would be capable of you know, allowing you to do some of the basic things that you do for some screen and battery repairs. And this move is a direct reversal of you know, Apple's longstanding policy. It is really, did we win? No, this is a, this is a small step, but it, it is a step in direct contrast to what Apple said they wanted to do and, and was safe and was secure. And, you know, they're, they're undercutting a lot of their arguments by making this move, you know, and, and granting access to these things, which, which frankly, there was really never a reason why they blocked repair shops from buying Apple batteries from buy, you know, that, that they can make it, it's a profitable service for them. Uh, and now they're going to, you know, make that profit and they're going to stop thumbing their nose at it. Uh, but at the same time, it, it, it is a really encouraging thing for the movement towards right to repair 
that we can force some of these concessions, um, you know, however limited it turns out it is. Um, and there's been some serious questions raised by independent repair shops about how limited it will be. Um, but at the same time, it's like they didn't want to do this and now they're doing it. So on, on that level, they've come away from a kind of maximalist position that, they, you know, we're not going to do, we're not going to sell parts. We're not going to make diagnostic software available to one where they're saying, in essence, well, um, for certain product, uh, namely the iPhone, we will sell parts and we will make at least some diagnostic software available. So that that seems to me, and, and you seem to agree, like a, a pretty big development. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and, and this is a point that I've been making for probably about six months, which is, you know, this isn't my first political, you know, campaign where I'm trying to force moneyed institutions to make uh, concessions, uh, you know, to the public. And, and there's a pattern to this, which is Stonewall, they fight and fight and they laugh at you and they fight you. And then I think what they do as a last step um, is they try to co-opt you. So like when, once you've right. won the public, once the public is like, you know what, plucky right to repair advocates, you're right. I bought it. I own it. I should be able to fix it. Then Apple gives enough of what they what you want on the edges, but still maintains enough control so that they still have this monopoly power. And so one of the things that we're concerned with is, you know, they, this is coming on the heels of a, another big Apple battery story, whereas if you replace your battery, even with an Apple OEM battery, but you don't do it with the special software at the iPhone store, it gives you a warning saying that, yes. you know, your battery might be... Uh, might be, uh, you know, it's not proper or whatever, and it won't tell you the battery health. Right. Which is kind of like, uh, you know, that's it, a critical piece of information right. that they were providing, but if you have Apple not service your battery, then they take that piece of information away. And so they clearly have engineered this capacity with the device to prejudice against independent access and to create these barriers. And now... Yeah, you're you're degrading the functionality in a in a small way, but yeah. Yeah, and to what to what extent are they going to market that <laughs> monopolistic behavior now to a larger audience of people to buy into it? Nathan Proctor, you're the guy running Perg's uh, right to repair campaign nationally here in the U.S. But so I guess it's worthwhile asking what the impact is in a larger right to repair. My read on it is this is a very, very narrowly scoped program. We're talking about just certain models of iPhones. Exactly. Uh, and frankly, just a couple different types of repairs to those iPhones, namely screens and batteries, which is mostly what they do at the Genius Bar. So this certainly doesn't seem to have much bearing one way or the other on the larger right to repair effort, except insofar as, you know, Apple's a pretty high profile company and the iPhone's a pretty high profile product. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is also kind of like why, you know, we have some resistance to breaking uh, right repair into way too small of a piece because, um, you know, at the end of the day, the thing that the, the, the way that we interact with these devices, our relationship with these devices is really the thing that needs to be fixed. You know, we treat everything as if we buy it it's magical. We can't touch it. No one can touch it. The manufacturer is the only one with the blessing to, you know, to make any decision about what gets repaired and how it gets repaired. And, right. um, and, and the truth is that's just not true. And if you hang out with enough of the technicians who are fixing this stuff, they're constantly figuring out 
ways to improve the devices to fix them, to fix problems that Apple engineered into the devices. My thought is that what was notable is that you know Apple and its and the, the lobbying groups that it that it helps to fund have been traveling around to state capitals and kind of painting independent repair shops as fly-by-night organizations that put your data and and pictures and financial information at risk and you know of course we we have to use authorized repair because otherwise you know it's it's uh, open season for hackers this would seem to undermine that argument as well insofar as they're saying well actually we are willing to do business with independent repair shops even if we haven't authorized them and um, make both parts and software available to them. So that would seem to undercut the, there's a big security risk here. That's the real danger in them making moves that, you know, let's just say they're still maintaining their kind of control of the device in a way that, you know, I might think is monopolistic or, or there might be some downsides to the consumer in that arrangement. You know, let's just say that they give us a little bit. So when they give us a little bit, it just shows they know that we're right and we know that people agree with us. Then there's a bunch of other organizations that are lobbying against right to repair for whom Apple just, you know, just pokes huge holes in the sure. thing that they have been saying, which is like, if we don't verify this, it's totally unsafe. Apple's saying, well, actually, we can make it. We can work with this. I read a lobbying letter against right to repair, which said if people had access to the diagnostic software, then they could um, hack all of your iPhones. I mean, I don't think that the person who wrote this letter worked for Apple. These claims have been made, and now they're going to have to be walked back. Kyle, I worry that Apple's announcement might cause us to miss the forest for the trees. And the forest, to me, seems to be that companies across the economy are increasingly building product ecosystems that sell hardware, but then loop customers into very expensive and mandatory service contracts that the hardware depends on to work. Uh, We talk about John Deere a lot in the context of right to repair, but you also mentioned Cisco Systems and the way that they're structuring their maintenance, maintenance contracts for their routers and other networking hardware. Talk about that. Yeah, if you've seen Cisco smart licensing, what Cisco is doing is with hardware licensing, they're doing the same thing that that Adobe does with with Photoshop. And they're saying, hey, yeah, you have the router, but there's no way for you to operate it uh, without... Uh, without an active internet connection and a current current license check, and that's crazy. They're turning they're they're turning your ownership of hardware into a subscription model, and I am blown away that there has not been more uh, folks freaking out about this over the last years as they've been rolling. They started it out slowly, rolling it out to a few models, and now they're rolling out systemically across everything. Uh, and I would be really, really concerned about buying any Cisco equipment at all with this model. And and we should note this is this is a real uh, shift in thinking. Previously, you know, you would buy the hardware and the software updates and and so on would kind of be part of the product. I mean, it would be something that Cisco would provide to you as a as a you know customer who had purchased their product. Right. If I buy a a router or a switch from my office, I expect that's a one time purchase. I don't. I mean, you just think about the 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 hassle. I mean, what if you know, what if your IT guy is on vacation the week before and doesn't doesn't pay for the the subscription upgrade? It, it's a little bit like like SSL certificates where we're, we're constantly have to having to manage the expiration of those. You don't think about having to manage the expiration of the licenses on every piece of infrastructure in, in your networking cabinet. 
right? And you just think about all of the infrastructure that's out there in the world that just continues to operate. I mean, entropy is is a hell of a thing to be fighting. Every day, all of the things that we own are like slowly, incrementally breaking inside, right? And eventually it gets to the point where you're like, okay, you know, my battery's worn out and I need to swap. But like we are as humans fighting this constant war against entropy, this war to keep all the things that we have operational. It's hard enough fighting physics without having to fight this manufacturer licensing bullshit at the same time. Okay, so this announcement made a, a lot of waves, as any news from Apple does. But um, what what's the long term here? I know I've seen some what appear to be leaked price lists that seem to suggest that uh, for independent repair shops, these uh, authorized parts are, are not going to be uh, affordable. So the the impact of this might be quite small. But uh, where do you think things go here as we head into um, down the road a new legislative season and potentially more right to repair bills? This is an interesting signal that manufacturers reach the point where they're going to try and cut us off. This happened with tractors last year where they came up with this right repair solutions, uh, you know, memorandum of understanding, which they agreed to with themselves <laughs> between the people who make the stuff and their authorized dealerships as if they, that was a negotiation, you know, and I think that is this just a stall tactic. There's no data on when this is going to happen. And, the, as you said, the prices are not all that great. Many, many people who are fixing their phones will opt to pay more to get an OEM part, and they should have the option of doing that. Overall, this doesn't do anything to help some of the other issues that we've addressed. This doesn't do anything to help Android users or, you know, doesn't people do who, anything to help owners. Owners of phones are not able to take care of the take part in this program because they're not independent repair providers, right? And, and in fact, it, it probably shrinks the aftermarket uh, ecosystem for these parts a little bit. But again, because the prices are set high enough, like, I still think people are going to be like, uh, you know, the smart people are going to be like, listen, that, you know, the iFixit battery is exactly the same or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, don't, don't pay $60 for the Apple one. It's, it's not worth it. We think that the impact of this is going to be a little less you know, actually in the market for right to repair and in the, in the things we see in the world. But in terms of a narrative change, like this is a big moment because it shows manufacturers can do this. Uh, they'd be prepared to do it if enough pressure is put on them and they don't want this to continue. They don't want the, uh, the brand damage and the, the frustration of their consumers to continue to come at them. Uh, and I think that, you know, and Apple has been the most unwilling to negotiate and to, to think seriously about the issues we're raising. And if they're making some concessions, you know that there's other things happening in this environment where other companies are looking at this saying like, are we on the right side of this? Is this the smart thing to do? Kyle and Nathan, the other big event this summer was, of course, the FTC's Nixing the Fix workshop, which took place in Washington, D.C. in July. That addressed a wide range of issues relevant to repair, including cybersecurity. Both of you spoke at the event. Kyle, I'll start with you. What should we make of the FTC's sudden interest in repair and repair restrictions? This is a really interesting event. The FTC went out of their way to really kind of uh, invite, I think, a, a broad spectrum of members from the community. They had some uh, local repair shops that were, you know, one, two-person operations. They had uh, some of the associations like the, the Auto Repair Association that was able to get uh, auto right to repair passed in Massachusetts in 2012. Aaron Lowe from their organization spoke. So it was a really good kind of cross-section 
of the community uh, and, and people across the country. We had senators from Vermont and Minnesota. So I was really impressed with the organization that they put into the event. Did we win? Have we won? The question is, what is winning? For us, winning is getting the message out there, making it clear that the FTC knows that there is a vast market disruption that is happening uh, under their noses. And I think they got that message loud and clear. And this is more than digital right to repair, right? Because as you said, the auto auto industry was there and this problem is bigger than even just electronic devices and, and smartphones. And you feel like uh, given who was there and who they heard talk, you, you felt like they got that message. Right. They are looking across the economy and their job is kind of to, to safeguard competition. Uh, and, and so right at a high level, the FTC is pro-consumer and out there enforcing antitrust issues. And, and so the question is, is there a broad antitrust problem happening in the repair space? And the answer is obviously yes. Uh, and what's fascinating about it is that it's, it's, you have kind of this macro level like repairs being hurt, but then at the workshop, you heard from people that are having problems with Cisco equipment. You heard from appliance repair technicians. You heard from people that are trying to fix Samsung devices and the parts are too expensive. There's just yeah. a cavalcade of, of individual instances where, it, yeah, there are lots of you know specific egregious examples we can bring up, but at a whole, repair in the economy is being stifled systematically, uh, maybe without coordination between the manufacturers, but they're all employing very similar strategies. It really seems, and maybe this is where the FTC and Nixa Fix come in, it really seems like this is a classic example of where you need government to step in and, as it were, to um, to encourage a, a both a uh, economically, socially, and environmentally beneficial policy that just doesn't seem to be where the market is right now, right? Because this is this is both right. about extending the life of these really expensive devices. You know, iPhones are a thousand dollars now, uh, so that's good for consumers. It's good for the environment because you know we're not just tossing perfectly good electronics into the landfill. Um, and you know, it's, it's good for society as a whole, right? It's just kind of moving towards this kind of circular economy where we, we, you know, just try and, you know, extend and reuse and repurpose things. Um, but it's sort of like, it's hard to see, I don't know if, about you, but it's hard for me to see Silicon Valley getting there on their own or, you know, OEMs like John Deere or, or, um, you know, uh, uh, Honeywell necessarily getting there on their own. Well, it's so interesting because we talk to people inside these companies that want to. They want to do the right thing. They want their product. Like I mean, you think about these product designers. They spend a lot of years of their life working on the next iPhone design, working yeah. on, on the next Isma. They're very invested and they want the product to last a long time. And so they are looking for for resources internally on how to get this done. And we've come to uh, we've had people come to us and say, "Look, we love what you're doing. We think this is fantastic. We would like to do this internally, but I I don't have the, the internal power to make that unilateral decision. What would really help us is if there was a law that told us <laughs> that like set the baseline. Our company is really good at, at following laws. Just just pass a law, give us kind of basic guidelines, and then maybe we can rise above the minimum that the law requires. But I think you, you'd have a lot of people inside these organizations really welcoming something like this. The other event worth mentioning this summer was the Void of Remove panel that we all participated on at DEF CON in early August. That was about getting the information security engaged in the fight for right to repair. Kyle, what was your message to the security experts out at the DEF CON conference? 
Well, it's interesting because we've been applying for all these DMCA exemptions, and you know the first people looking for DMCA exemptions were kind of security researchers, and now it's broadened into repair. So now we're going to them. We're saying, look, this this thing that we need to do to validate the security on, on a vehicle is the exact same thing that we need to do in order to calibrate a new tire pressure sensor. Uh, so it's it's getting it. it it's it's kind of opening the world of hardware. Uh, it's closed by the manufacturers. Fine. Security researchers need to understand the contours, the the uh, sort of you know. Uh, surface area of the product and repairs need to be able to poke in and flip bits. Yeah. And so I think that fundamentally uh, and, and going forward, there's going to be a huge amount of overlap between the repair community and the, and the security community. Do you think that, I mean, I did, my perception is the security community has not been that engaged on this beyond, as you said, the sort of, you know, every three year DMCA exemption fight, which, you know, started out really being about, you know, jailbreaking, you know, iPhones and stuff like that, but is now, as we saw about a lot more, it's about tractors and, and everything else. Right. I mean, even even on the on the policy side, like I was at the DMC, I was at the copyright office of DMCA hearings, arguing for the ability for security researchers to do work, uh, and and EFF was there alongside. But but outside of of, of me and some folks like like Jay uh, Sarek, uh, who runs the City App Store, there, there's been a few of us, but it's been a pretty small community of people working on policies that will. Uh, proactively protect the ability of security researchers to do their work into the future, right? We can't just rely on EFF to do it for us. We all have to be be engaged. Uh, and, and it's been really fun collaborating with them and, and their legal team. And we've brought some, some uh, you know, university law clinics on board. But there has been, I would say, relatively little engagement from the security community in policy across the board, whether it's security policy or repair policy. And I think having more people engaged would definitely help. Kyle and Nathan, where do you think things go here as we head into um, down the road a new legislative season and potentially more right to repair bills? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, as right to repair advocate looking ahead, this is an interesting signal that manufacturers reach the point where they're going to try and cut us off. This happened with tractors last year, where they came up with this right repair solutions memorandum of understanding, which they agreed to with themselves <laughs> between the people who make the stuff and their authorized dealerships as if they that was a negotiation. We think that the impact of this is a little, a little less you know, actually in the market for right repair and in the, in the things we see in the world. But in terms of a narrative change, like this is a big moment because it shows manufacturers can do this. They'd be prepared to do it if enough pressure is put on them and they don't want the brand damage and yeah. the, the frustration of their consumers to continue to come at them. You know, and Apple is the most, Raquel has been the most unwilling to negotiate and to, to think seriously about the issues we're raising. And if they're making some concessions, you know that there's other things happening in this environment where other companies are looking at this saying like, are we on the right side of this? Is this a smart thing to do? Kyle, your thoughts on that? Well, my message is there is hope. Like this is something that we can mm -hmm. do. We, we, you know, no one knew that farmers are having trouble with their tractors until we you know, identified it and started bringing it uh, to the public's awareness. And uh, we were able to get the copyright office to specifically legalize both security research and repairs on tractors. This is fantastic. Mm -hmm. We can continue building on this momentum. Uh, we just need we need more people engaged. That's my my message is there is hope it can be done. We are systematically making progress. We have more freedoms now than we did last September. Yep. 
Uh, and if, if we can just get one of these uh, uh, pieces of state legislation passed, it will it will open uh, the floodgates. I think it's going to usher in a lot more device freedom and, and hopefully a lot more information about how these things work so that we can do the security analysis that we need to. Nathan Proctor of U.S. Perg, thank you for coming on and talking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Yeah, anytime, Paul. Colleen, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Absolutely. Thanks. Nathan Proctor is the director of the Right to Repair campaign at U.S. Perg, the public interest research group. Kyle Weens is the founder of iFixit, the Internet's largest repair site. 